Welcome to Awaken to Grace. I'm Chad Roberts. Today we are in Mark chapter 6. We are walking with Jesus from miracle to miracle through town after town and village after village. Well, today we are going to see what prevented Jesus from doing mighty miracles. And you know, surprisingly, it was not satanic activity. It was not any kind of demon. You know what prevented Jesus from doing mighty things? The Bible says unbelief. Oh, unbelief is such a problem, not only in Jesus' day that he walked the earth, but in our day right now. Friends, today I want to help you detect unbelief, and I want to show you how you can remove it. Unbelief is going to be the thread that we are going to see throughout all of chapter 6. And as we work our way to the feeding of the 5,000 and the disciples on the stormy sea of Galilee, well, we are going to see how you and I can remove unbelief out of our life. I'm so glad you're listening today. I hope you enjoy this episode of Awakened to Grace. Let's go to Mark chapter 6 today. Mark chapter 6. I want to talk to you today about something that can easily go undetected in our life. I want to talk to you about something that we battle as believers. And it's something that you may feel like you have easily gotten past, but in reality might be lying within you. If the Lord would show it to you today, I want to talk today about how Jesus dealt with unbelief. I want to talk today about what unbelief is and how it amazes me that as we go through the gospel of Mark, it is unbelief that we often detect. It's interesting that in verse number six of our text today, Jesus is literally going to marvel at their unbelief. Now, that word marvel, let's, let's maybe use the word amazed. Jesus is literally amazed at these people's unbelief. If you read the Gospels carefully, there, there really are only two things that Jesus ever marveled at on this earth. You know, he was never amazed at individual talent. He was never amazed at crowds, no matter how large they swelled to. Christ wasn't ever amazed at anyone's personal abilities or their capabilities. There are only two things that amazed the Lord Jesus Christ. One is in this passage, March 6, he was amazed at their unbelief. And when it comes to the centurion, Jesus was amazed. He marveled at the man's faith. Isn't that something? And you know what? As we look today, let me assure you, it is not talent that God is looking for. You may feel like one of the least talented in the building, but it's not talent that impresses God. It's not capabilities or it's not skill sets or it's not anything like that that would impress the Lord Jesus Christ today. There's only one thing that God is looking for when he comes back to this earth. Luke chapter 18. The Bible says that God is looking for a people of faith. And today I want us to really take inventory. 
I want us to really examine our lives. I want us to examine our hearts. I want us to examine our own faith today. And I want us to take inventory and say, am I a person that when the Lord looks at me transparently, when the Lord looks at me with those burning eyes as flames of fire, will he see in me a person of faith or a person of unbelief? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, take care. In other words, take inventory. Pay close attention. Take care that you, it says brothers, it's speaking now, pay attention to that. It says, take care, brothers, that there not be found in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away from God. It may be today that you are someone that you received the gospel very early in life. You may have grown up around this stuff. Or it may be that you've had very little exposure to God or the preaching of the Bible and now things are interesting you. Maybe today you feel almost like a magnet. You're drawn to this stuff and you're not quite sure why. Well, let me tell you, the Bible says that when the gospel, when the seeds are sown... That it either falls on rocky soil of the heart. In other words, it's too shallow. It doesn't take root. And after a while, it dies out because the roots never took. When we planted our shrubbery out front, you know, here we're in the downtown area. The men who planted the shrubbery, they were so concerned about it. They said, Chad, there's, there's not much down there to take root of. They said, you're going to have to nurture it. You're going to have to water it every single day. You're going to have to be, if it's right in the dead of summer, and they said the heat can kill it, and you're just going to have to pay really close attention to it. And some of you, your faith is like that. You need to nurture it. You need to care for it carefully and deeply. Why? Because your faith needs to take root. Then others, the Bible says, Jesus said that the seed fell on shallow ground and that, and that it was the cares of this life that choked it out. On this side of our church property, we've got a lot of kudzu. Anybody ever deal with kudzu? I mean, you know, it's hard to deal with kudzu, right? It's one of the most invasive things. We had to have somebody come with special chemicals just to try to kill it out. And it's almost impossible to kill. And if you don't fight it back... What happens to that kudzu? It's so invasive. It takes over everything. And Jesus said, if you're not careful, the cares of this life, it chokes out the seed of God's word. And some of you, you measure your life by how much money you accumulate. You measure your life by how much possessions you own. You measure your life by how successful you feel. You measure your life by those things you're trying so hard to obtain and you try so hard to grasp. And Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gained the entire world, yet he loses his soul? What will it gain you? And Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Don't allow anything, whether it's your job, whether it's security, whether it's your hobbies or your interests or whatever. Don't allow anything to choke out the seed of God's word out of your heart. No, you fight it back. You do whatever you must. 
to cut that back and allow God's word to take root in your life. And then Jesus said, there are some hearts that are good soil. And when the seed of God's word gets, gets down into the, into the soil of that heart, oh, those roots, they're going to grow deep. Amen. And you are going to grow up. Under the Lord. You're going to grow in your spiritual growth. You're going to grow in your spiritual maturity. And you are going to more and more and more become more like Jesus. Amen? My kids, boy, Sadie and I, we just laugh at how much they're like us. They are just like us. They act just, I mean, all the good, they're like me. All the bad, they're like her. But they, they get all that from her. But we can see our kids in them. So, you know, we see ourselves in our kids. Why? Why do our kids act just like us? Because they're born of us. Right? They have our nature in them. And you know what happens when you're born again? You're going to begin to act like the Lord. You're going to begin to think like the Lord. You're going to begin to hate sin like God hates it. Amen? And you're going to be just like the Lord. And how do we learn? We learn by imitating, don't we? You know, it's so funny to me. My, my kids, you know, I'll say something and a day or two later I hear them saying the same thing. Why? They imitate. John Mark, who's only three, boy, he looks up so much to his Brother Hudson, who's only, Hudson will be five next month. We call him Pete and repeat. Because whatever Hudson does, Jay does. Pete and repeat. But how do you learn? You imitate. And what did Paul say? Paul said, imitate us as we imitate the Lord. Why? Because we're growing in our faith. And church... I want to tell you the trajectory that the Lord has us on right now. God is trying to grow our faith. And my question to you today is very simple. Can your faith grow? My question today is could it be that there are some of us that God desires to do great things in us? So that he might do great things through us. But it's our lack of faith. It's our unbelief. That may be preventing. The great work of God in our life. We're going to look today at chapter 6 of the book of Mark. And this is the most difficult assignment for a blind pastor. I love it when God has me preach out of one verse. Because it's so easy to memorize. Today is 56 verses. So let's start with verse 1. When Jesus entered... No, I'm kidding. I didn't memorize 56 <laughs> verses. <sighs> 56 verses. Six sections of this chapter. But Caesar, there's a thread that runs through the chapter. And my goal today is to extract that thread. And here is going to be the thread today. We're going to see unbelief. Now, why is this substantial? Because where have we come so far? In week one, which was chapter one, we saw Jesus healing the man of leprosy. What a mighty and amazing miracle that was. In chapter two, we were in Peter's home and 
Remember, the crowd was so large that no one could get to Jesus. These four men who brought their paralyzed friend on a stretcher, and they couldn't even get close to the master. And so what did they do? They took him on the stairs outside up to the roof, and they deconstructed the roof. They literally tore the roof off, and they lowered the man down, and Jesus healed him and saved him and forgave him of his sins. And the disciples saw that. And then in chapter 3, you know, we're walking with Jesus. That's what we're calling this series, walking with Jesus. And then we go to Jesus, back to Capernaum, and we walk into a synagogue with him. And when he goes into the synagogue on that day to teach, what's there? A man with a withered hand. Do you remember him in chapter 3? And Jesus calls him forward. And we talked about how every one of us have a withered hand in our life. It may be our past. It may be insecurities. It may be anxieties. It may be depression. It may be whatever, fill in the blank. But every one of us has a withered hand that at some point God will call out and say, stretch it forth. And there God grows our faith. Amen. And then we came to chapter 4. You remember chapter 4? Jesus takes his disciples on the Sea of Galilee 13 miles long, seven miles wide, and all of a sudden this satanic and supernatural storm comes and hits them, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And what does he do? He rebukes the wind and silences the water. Huh. And what a mighty miracle. And the Bible says, and they were astonished and astounded and said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey Remember what we've said throughout the entire study. The book of Mark, if you pay attention to it, you can feel the tension of the disciples. Remember what we keep saying. Verse 1 tells the reader who Jesus is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know from the outset... This is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And every demon that we encounter throughout the book, they recognize Jesus. They even identify Jesus. And what do they see? What do they say? You're the Holy One of Israel, the Son of God. And here are his followers, the disciples. And the whole book, they're scratching their head saying, who is he? Who is this man? Who is he? And you can feel the tension because the point of the, the whole point of the book of Mark is to take someone to a decision point. Just like Peter. And Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ. And Jesus said, flesh and blood's not revealed this to you. The spirit of God has revealed this to you. And so as we study the book and as we go from chapter to chapter and town to town and as we go from story to story, this is what I want you to appreciate. There is a tension of trying to figure out who this man really is. And the whole point of the book is to lead us, the reader, to the knowledge, to the realization that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we go from chapter 4, the silencing of the storm, where the disciples go, who is this man? To now chapter 5, where we were last week, what did we encounter? Three desperate people. The man who was tormented by the legion of demons. And we're going to see that at the end of the text today. We're going to see the woman. Last week was the woman who, how many years did she suffer from a blood disease? Twelve. 
Now, remember, we said that's significant. And then we saw Jairus' daughter, the ruler of the synagogue. She died, and the Lord Jesus brought her back to life. Anybody remember how old she was? Twelve. Why? Remember, we said twelve is the number of the kingdom. Now, it's going to be no coincidence that in our text today, when we get down into the 40s, what we're going to see in verses uh, like 44 to 51, what we're going to see is the feeding of the 5,000 plus. And do you know how many baskets of food were left over? Twelve. Are you hearing a thread? Why? Because, again, it's the number of the kingdom. There's going to be a little phrase that we're going to explore today in verse 52. And what it says is that the disciples did not understand the loaves and their hearts were hardened. When we get there, I want us to really pick this apart. Why did they not understand the extra 12 baskets that were left over from the feeding of the 5,000? There's a link there. What do we say 12 is? The number of the kingdom. So let's jump in to the first section of this. The first section is going to be verses 1 through 6. And what we're going to see in verses 1 through 6 is the unbelief of the people who Jesus grew up around. If you're going to take notes, I want you to note a couple of things. Jesus grew up in a very small town. Now, I grew up in the, um, in the metropolis of Mount Carmel. And I don't know if you know how small Mount Carmel is, but it's not very large. But Jesus really grew up in a small town. Nazareth, scholars tell us, would have had a population of about 200 people at the time of Jesus. Nazareth was so insignificant that it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament at all. Jesus grew up in a very obscure, very insignificant town. And here is a population of about 200 people. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody was Facebook friends. Not really, but it would have been. Everybody knew everyone's business, no doubt. And now Mary comes up pregnant. And what do you think the talk of the town is? And so Jesus in his adulthood at this point, I don't know if any of you have ever grown up in a town, left, and then came back home. It can feel pretty awkward, can't it? And Jesus comes back home. He goes into the synagogue. The other gospels give us a little more detail than here in Mark, but he goes into the synagogue and they assign to him. The reading that day is going to be Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news to the captives. Every Jew knew that was a messianic prophecy. And everyone in the synagogue that day knew Jesus was referencing himself. And I want you to look at verses 3 and 4, how the people responded. Do you know how the people of Nazareth responded to him? Look what it says. They took offense at him. You know what, they're say- you know what that's saying? They're saying... Listen, the Bible tells us they knew about his miracles. They knew all the things that were done by his hands. They knew the authority with which he preached. And they said, where did this man get this? Remember, we said this man is a derogatory term. Who? Here's what they're saying. They're saying, who does Jesus think he is? 
That word offense literally means stumbling. They, they stumbled at him. Here, here's the attitude of these people. They go, he's the carpenter's son. I want you to note they don't say Joseph. There's two reasons they don't say Joseph. Number one, we believe Joseph had passed away by this time. But do you know why they don't reference Joseph? Because they saw him as an illegitimate child. Psalm 69 references that Christ was a foreigner among his family. In other words, he had the burden of feeling like an illegitimate child. And do you know why he went through that? It's so that we might be legitimate children of God. Amen? Amen. To as many believed on him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. He who knew no sin becomes sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And this was part of Jesus' sufferings. Not just the cross, not just Passion Week, not just the crown of thorns, but the unbelief of everyone around him. And they took offense. In essence, here's what they're saying. <laughs> Jesus, son of God. He grew up three doors down from me. <laughs> Jesus, son of God. Did you hear him today? I taught him Sunday school when he was five years old. <laughs> Jesus, son of God. Joseph's not even his father. <laughs> Here he is. He says he's the son of God. And they took offense. And even his own family. Listen, you remember a couple of chapters back, his brothers and sisters came to get him because they thought he was out of his mind. And what does the text say right here? Is this not the son of the carpenter, the son of Mary, and of his four brothers and his sisters? You know, that's significant too. Some of you maybe, you know, have a Catholic background. One of the, one of the differences between uh, a Protestant and a Catholic view of this Catholics believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. The scriptures say different. Scriptures teach that Mary went on to marry Joseph, and Jesus had many siblings. Did you know that? I was thinking about that today, this morning. I was thinking, remember when they lost Jesus when he was 12 years old? Can you imagine how Mary and Joseph felt as parents? They lost the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how that would... I mean, have you ever left your kid somewhere? Right? How many of you were left somewhere as a kid? Joe Dirt, right? You know? <laughs> but, I mean, they lost Jesus for days. It took them days to realize that they lost him. You know what? I think that means what a perfect kid Jesus was. They never even noticed he was gone. He was literally a sinless kid. But when you consider what chapter 6, verse 3, our text today says, he had four brothers plus sisters. And we don't know if that's two sisters, five, seven, we don't know. But whatever, he had a plurality of siblings. And Jesus was 12 when Mary and Joseph lost him. I bet they were wrangling all of their other kids. And Jesus was so quiet, they didn't even notice it. <laughs> Interesting. Anyways, what, what's, what's the point? The point is Mary went on to have many other children. And yet Jesus grew up in an environment of unbelief. Where people did not believe his hometown. The people he was neighbors with. The people who watched him grow up. They did not believe. And, I want to, and here's my point. Here's what I want you to see. Verse 5 and 6. Jesus 
could not do any mighty miracles. And here's what I want you to see. The Bible identifies why. It was not because of any satanic work. It wasn't because of any demonic activity. What is it that limited? What is it that prevented Jesus from doing mighty works? Unbelief. Now let me ask you a question. What is unbelief limiting in your life? What is unbelief preventing God from doing that God truly wants to do in your faith and in your life? But because we've grown comfortable, because, hear me now, say amen if you're with me right now. People had unbelief because Nazareth was familiar with Jesus. Could it be that you're so familiar with the things of God that you have unbelief? That your faith is quite small. It's quite limited. I feel what God's wanting to do in my life is to take whatever measure of faith I have right now and say, okay, Lord, I want that measure of faith to grow. I want my faith to increase. And if you're a person today that you want your faith to grow, you want to go from this level of faith to that level of faith, and you say, Chad, how does that happen? Let me tell you the biblical way that it happens. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And that's why we study the Word of God. In this pulpit, we don't study famous lectures. We don't study famous speeches of history. We don't study nice little stories and great antidotes. And we don't study this this section of history. No, we study the Word of God. Why? Because it's alive and it's powerful, amen. And it will build your faith. That's why we study it. And let me tell you, you want to go down a faith journey, you begin to read. You begin to memorize. You begin to apply. You hide the word of God in your heart and you will not sin against God. Amen? It builds you. It builds faith into you. It's the word. Amen? And if you'll get the word in you, more of the word in you, your faith will increase and the unbelief will be pushed out. But we have to first recognize it. We have to first detect it. Is there unbelief in your life? Well, next, let's continue through the text. Verses 7 to 13 is quite interesting. Jesus is going to empower his apostles. He's going to say... I'm going to send you out two by two. I want you to go out and I want you to do the same works that I do. And so they went two by two, trusting in God. He said, don't take an extra coat. Don't take extra supplies. I want you to trust God. Go out, preach the gospel. And the Bible says they went out preaching repentance and had power and authority over unclean spirits. And they saw miracles. I mean, they did everything that Jesus did. Now, that's significant. And we're going to come back to it. And I want to show you a link, I believe, in the text. Now, when you come to verse 14, down, I believe, to verse 31, Mark is going to tell us about King Herod. Now, if you ever read the New Testament and you scratch your head over all the King Herods, because remember King Herod 
killed all the boys under the age of two when Jesus was born, but then he dies. And then the Lord tells Joseph, okay, it's time to come out of Egypt back to Israel. It's safe. Well, now here's another King Herod. Well, which is it? And then there's King Herod of Acts 12, and there's King Agrippa, who is the nephew of King Herod. There's all this. What, who are all these kings? This will help you in your understanding of the Gospels. Herod was not one individual. Herod is a family dynasty. Herod was a family name. Okay? So there are multiple King Herods. This particular King Herod, who ruled this east region of the Jordan, his name was King Herod Antipas. And he was predominant in the Gospels through the adulthood of Jesus. Okay? Matter of fact, this is the same King Herod Antipas who is going to behead John the Baptist here in the text. And he's also going to be part of the crucifixion trial of Jesus along with Pontius Pilate. And you remember when Jesus stands for Herod, he didn't even speak a word to him. Boy, I think that's significant. And so King Herod throws this massive party, and you can read it in the text for yourself. The request is for the head of John the Baptist. Here's what I want to show you. Here's what I want you to see today. John the Baptist preached repentance. And I want you to look at verse 20. I think it's some of the most fascinating scripture in the Bible when you, when you stop to pause. The Bible says that King Herod feared John the Baptist. Now, I like that. That tells me John the Baptist was a mighty man. You know, it was said of Queen Bloody Mary in the 1500s. Queen Bloody Mary executed Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors in her day. And it was said that Queen Mary said of the great John Knox, that mighty Scottishman, she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than an army of thousands. That's significant. But I want you to pay attention to verse 20. It says that King Herod was afraid of John the Baptist. He feared him. And notice what it says. He was perplexed by John the Baptist. But note this. He listened to him. He heard him gladly. Now, I want to draw a principle here. You can look this up, and it's quite fascinating. If you ever Google the correspondence between Benjamin Franklin of early colonial America, and the great George Whitfield. If you don't know who George Whitfield was, he was an Englishman who would come to the colonies in the early 17, mid, no, yeah, well, it'd probably be mid-1700s, before the founding of America. And Whitfield would preach up and down the eastern seaboard, from Georgia up into New England. And he was a mighty man of God. They called him God's lightning rod. And in his day, in early colonial America, deism was sweeping through the colonies. Deism was a belief that God was the creator of the universe, but when it came to the daily affairs of man, God was uninvolved and uninterested. It's very dangerous thinking. 
If God is uninterested or uninvolved in the daily affairs of man, then that doesn't make him judge. Where is the accountability of the way that we live? And Benjamin Franklin was a deist. And according to his letters and what historical documents we have, even though I have a very high regard for Benjamin Franklin as a founding father of our nation, even though he was brilliant and amazing inventor and We cannot say enough high remarks about him. When it comes to spiritually, there's no record that he ever put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of his soul. And if you read the letters between Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield, what is very apparent is Benjamin Franklin loved the preaching of George Whitfield. He was entertained by it. Perhaps he even felt conviction over it, but he never responded. He never put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you the warning to our generation. You can love the preaching of the gospel. You can love the house of God. You can love the music. You can love devotions. You can love podcasts. You can love sermons. You can love to learn. But if you don't put your faith in Jesus, then you're not born again. So what is the difference between faith and believing? Because there's many listening today that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you think that's enough. You believe that he died for your sin. You believe that he raised from the dead. You believe that he is God, but that is not enough. For the Bible says in the book of James that demons believe and tremble. Tonight... I have the high privilege of hanging out with our middle schoolers, our L3 middle school. And for the next two weeks, we're doing a thing called Ask Anything. And they're bringing me in to ask questions. Oh, my Lord. Do you know what kind of questions middle schoolers have asked? Oh, my goodness gracious. What questions? There's... (laughs) I ain't even going to say that one. 6.30 6.30 this morning, I was telling Sadie these questions. I got them in, a, in an Alexa list, and she's listening to me. She said, those come from middle schoolers? Yeah. One of them asked, what a great question. One of them asked, if Satan repented, would God forgive him? Oh, isn't that a great question? And the short answer is no. Grace is not offered. Grace is only to the sons, of, sons and daughters of Adam. That those of us who are created in the very image of God, who God ransomed and redeemed, God did not die for demons or spirits. He died for humanity. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Peter that we have such a salvation that even angels long to look. They're intrigued by it. Why would the Lamb of God die for sinners? Demons believe and tremble, yet they are not born again. So what's the difference between somebody who is a good person, with a good heart, with good intentions, with a good nature? What's the difference between a good moral person believing in Jesus and having faith in Jesus? Do you know what the difference is? The difference is... Faith, if you're going to write this down, faith is belief plus 
trust. It means that at the end of the day, when you stand before God, you do not trust in your good heart. You do not trust in your good lifestyle. You do not trust in your good deeds. You do not trust the fact that you've been a good person in life. No, it means that you trust only in the work of Jesus Christ. You trust in the shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness, for the salvation over your sins. That is salvation. That is faith. Faith is belief, which most of you have, plus trusting in. Do you trust today in Jesus and Jesus only? That's when you step from belief into the realm of faith. And as you step into the realm of faith, let me tell you, my friends, it's not the ending. It is only the beginning. And see, there are some of you precious, precious people. I want you to hear my heart today. There are some of you that you've been saved for decades. But let me tell you, your mentality has been, that's the ending. No, my friend, it's just the beginning. Amen? And God wants to grow your faith. God wants to grow your capacity. God wants to do unbelievable things in your life and in your heart and through your prayers. But he can only do it through faith. So if your faith is so small, then what can God do? If Jesus was limited by unbelief, then what is our unbelief preventing him from doing right now, today, in our lives? We go from King Herod And his unbelief. See, we've seen the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, the ones that Jesus grew up around. We see the unbelief of the bigwigs of the high and mighty of King Herod. He beheads John the Baptist. And now I want you to go down to verse 44. Now a mighty miracle is going to take place. So Jesus is teaching. And if you're going to take notes, you need, you need to understand this. Uh, somewhat common knowledge here. So, but if you don't know this, just make note of it. In these days, it was customary, they counted the men. So when the Bible says that there were 5,000 that Jesus fed, what's not included in that number are all of the women, all of their wives and all their children. So there probably was up to 15,000 people being fed this day. Now, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do a catering, and we'll feed two, 300 people in a catering. And I'm a ball of nerves. I mean, hey, is the food going to, do we got enough food? Is it going to last? You know, all this and that. To me, a catering of a few hundred people is a pretty big undertaking. We're talking 15,000 hungry stomachs. Could you imagine being responsible to feed 15,000 people at one time? And I want you to notice the dialogue. Actually, I said verse 44. I think we're in 31. Forgive me. Go back to 31, 32, 33. Read it all. It'll be good for you. And so I want you to watch the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. I find it nearly comical. So, well, let me say it this way. I would hate to know what my attitude would have been that day had I been an apostle of the Lord on this day. I probably would have had a very sorry attitude. So watch the exchange. 
The disciples come to Jesus because he's been teaching, and I take comfort in this because apparently Jesus was long-winded. That's what I read out of the story. The day is spent, and it's getting ready, and the day's over, and Jesus is still going. So I like that, that Jesus maybe was long-winded. Makes me feel better anyway. So the disciples come to him, and they say, Jesus, the day is gone, and you know, the sun, hey, no one's ate, and you need to cut it off, is what they're saying. <laughs> you need to wind it down, and you need to send everybody out to the towns and the villages so that they can eat. And Jesus says the oddest thing. Jesus says, you feed them. Now, apparently, the disciples took a little bit of offense at this, as probably would I. And you know what the disciples said? Are we to take 200 denarii and feed them all? <laughs> Let me translate. 200 denarii would have been just about a year's worth of wages. One denarii a day would have been one day's labor. So you're looking 200 days labor worth of food here for one dinner. Now, I'm not... Uh, great at math, but why don't you calculate what you earn per day and then times that by 200 days, and would you be willing to spend that much money on one meal? And so here's what the disciples, I think, kind of maybe even in a smart aleck way is saying, who has the budget for that? What do you mean feed them? We don't have that much money. We haven't even stayed in a hotel you know how I know that? Because Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They weren't, they weren't going from Hyatt to Hyatt and Marriott to Marriott and Hilton to Hilton. All right? And the disciples are going, we don't have the money for this. We don't have an entire year's way. Hey, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. We quit our jobs. We left homes. We walked away from everything to follow you. And now you tell us, you feed them? With what? Why would Jesus have said, you do it? Do you know why I think? Because you got to go back to verses 7 through 13. What had Jesus already done? He had already empowered them. He had already said, go out and do the things that I do. Amen? Now, I'm not throwing stones to that. Listen, Jesus knew they weren't ready, but Jesus was getting them ready. Amen? Because when the Holy Spirit filled them, what does Peter and John do? They go, up, they go up to the temple. They see the crippled man, and he's wanting money from them. And what do they say? Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Amen? Amen. Oh, they're going to learn it. And they're going to learn it well. And they're going to flip the world upside down in the name of the Lord. Amen? And they're going to understand that Jesus said, don't marvel at the things that I do. You'll do these things. You'll only do them what? Greater. You'll do them more. Amen? 
And I believe the Lord is saying the same thing to this church today. I believe God is increasing our faith. And I believe all the things that we're praying for, all the things that we're believing God for, we're saying, God, when are you going to do it? And I believe God's looking at us saying, you're already empowered. You do it. Amen. But how can we do it with unbelief? How can we do it with such little faith? No, my friends, we got to grow our faith. And I believe God's saying, you step in. You do it. You have the power in my name. It's not our ability. It's not our strength. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When we pray over these prodigals, we're not praying our will. We're not praying our ambition. We're not praying in our strength or our ability. We're praying in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dry bones live in the name of the Lord. Amen. Read Acts chapter 3. Read Acts chapter 4. And just count how many times in those two chapters it is in the name. In the name. In the name. In the name. And let me tell you, we get back to that in this church, we'll see God do mighty works. Amen. But it's going to take faith. It's going to take faith. And I want my faith to grow. I don't want to be one of these Christians that said God used to. God used to do that. I don't want to be that. Last week, I listened to a story. My mom called me and she said, you have to watch this YouTube video. And YouTube is the one thing that I can't bring up on my devices. I can't say, open YouTube and it play. So I'm very limited in that. And I let the days go and the days go. And she'd ask me, have you watched that video? No, not yet. Have you watched that video? Finally, she come down here to the church one day, and she said, you got him? And I said, yeah. She said, come here, we're watching this video. <laughs> and it was a 24-minute uh, video. And it's the story of a healing of a woman named Betty Baxter. This video was recorded in 1977. And I'm telling you, church, it lit a fire in my faith, like nothing has ever lit it. Betty Baxter got a disease when she was 11 years old. Can I just take a minute? Do we got a little bit of time? Now, we ain't going to have no feeding of 5,000 in here, but if you'll give me a little bit of your lunch time, I'll appreciate it. <laughs> I should have packed everybody a bag lunch. That would have been perfect for this illustration today. Could you imagine if bag lunches were going out? That'd be awesome. But anyways, let me, if you just give me a moment here. At 11 years old, this little girl growing up in Minnesota was diagnosed with a disease, and it curved her spine. It doubled her over so far, so deeply, it moved her organs, and it enlarged her heart. And doctors gave her zero chance of survival. They sent her home to die. She was 15 years old. She had suffered since 11, and she was about to die. And she was 15 years old when the Lord told her he was going to heal her. That was 1941. And let me tell you, her pastor didn't believe in healing. Her father, although godly people, did not believe in healing. 
There were only two people in this little 15-year-old girl's life who believed in healing. Her mama, Mrs. Baxter. And do you know why she believed in healing? Because she read the Bible. And she believed exactly what it said. And you know who else believed for her healing? Her four-year-old brother, Ross. She said, you want to get a prayer partner? You get a four-year-old because they'll believe God. An unbelievable, unbelievable, the Lord spoke to that 15-year-old girl. And he said, I'm going to heal you on August 24th at 3 o'clock p.m. And the Lord told her something amazing. The Lord said, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Well, she said she had never kept a secret from her mom. She was her best friend. Her mom came in that afternoon. And she asked Betty, when do you think the Lord's going to heal you? Oh, no, now she's stuck. She can't lie to her, but she also can't disobey the Lord. She didn't know what to do. So she smiled and she said, what do you think, Mama? And do you know what her mother told her? On August 24th at 3 o'clock p.m. That little 15-year-old girl, that little faith. She said, Mama, how did you know that? Her mother said, The same God that speaks to you speaks to me. So listen to what they did. I'm talking about growing your faith. Listen to what they did. They believed that God was going to keep his word. Her mom went that day and bought that little girl dress and black patent leather shoes to wear to church On Sunday night, August 24th, 1941. And they believed God. She said the days were long, but she would look over at that dress and those shoes and it would give her hope. You know what they did? They invited all their neighbors. They invited all their family to be in the living room at 3 o'clock on August 24th. They brought her downstairs, carried her. She couldn't even walk. Put her in an overstuffed chair. Pain racking her body. And while people prayed. About three after ten. About ten minutes after three. She said she felt hands. Burning. Hot. Touch her. She had large knots. Five large knots. Looked like stones down her spine. And they began to disappear. She said she felt hot hands around her heart and it squeezed her heart and she said for the first time in years she took a deep breath and didn't choke she said she could feel her organs lining up and something took her arms and her legs and they heard the bones crack and she said she sat and stood up straight as an arrow healed completely of the Lord Jesus Christ amen let me tell you I don't ever want to be a Christian who says, yeah, but. I don't ever want to be a Christ follower who says, he did that way back then. But he don't do it today. I don't ever want to be a person of unbelief. Amen? And let me tell you what the word says. He's the same today and yesterday, today and forever. Amen? 
I'm not going to limit him. I'm not going to prevent him with my small, little unbelief. No, I'm going to capture it and I'm going to get it out of the way. Amen. So the disciples. Mm. The disciples, they get into the boat. The Lord tells them, get in the boat and I'll meet you on the other side. They get in the boat and. Now, remember, there's all kinds of fear going on. Some of you may have fear today. Let me tell you, the disciples understand that. They get into the boat, verses 44, 45. They get into the boat, and the Lord says, I'm going to dismiss the crowd. You go to the other side. I'm going to go to the mountain to pray. So the disciples are in the boat, and the storm comes. Again, I remember they just went through a storm that they thought they were going to die. You don't think that didn't trigger fear? You didn't think that didn't trigger? Because this time, Jesus wasn't in the boat. Now, come on, say amen if you're with me. Jesus will grow your faith. He took them through the storm with him in the boat. Now he's going to take them through another storm, and he's not in the boat, but guess where he is? He's on the mountain, and he can see them. It was only a four-mile distance, and the Lord could see them. And he's going to grow their faith. And so the storm comes, and this time Jesus is sitting in the boat. Now... All of a sudden, in the fourth watch, you know what the fourth watch is? That would, that would have been between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Let me tell you, you want to do some real praying, you pray between 3 and 6 a.m. The Lord's in the fourth watch. And so they see. Now, these are, these are, these are grown men. And what do they see walking on the water? Do you remember? A ghost. These are full-grown men who are, half of them are sailors. And I bet they curse like sailors too, if I'm just guessing. Peter cussed out that little girl, remember that? And here are these sailors, full-grown men. They're, they see a ghost. Do you know why they're so scared? You know? Because they're going to Gennesaret. Remember where we were last week? The demoniac man and Jesus cast out that legion of demons. They go into the herd of swine and those 2,000 pigs go over the cliff. And where do they drown? In the sea. And now, see, you don't think all this isn't fresh in their minds? The storm that they went through with Jesus and now the drowning of those 2,000 pigs. And now all of a sudden they see a spirit. They see a ghost walking on the water. They are, they are freaking out. And remember what I've said through the study of the book. I'm going to get ready to close. But remember what I said through the study of the book. I really believe that this is Peter's gospel. I think that John Mark penned it. According to 1 Peter, John Mark was close to Peter. And Peter was close to Mary, his mother, and John Mark. And they spent time in Rome together. And I believe that Peter dictated the gospel, and John Mark penned it. I've got many reasons for that that I've shared through our study. But here's another one. In the other gospel accounts, do you remember what happens? Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that it doesn't tell us how many steps he took. We don't know if that was two steps or 20 steps. But here's what's fascinating with me. In Mark's account, 
That part of the story is omitted. Why do you think it's omitted? I think it's because of the humility of Peter. I don't know about you, but if I ever walk on water, I promise you, it would be the story of my life. In every single sermon, I'll say, you remember that time I walked on water? You remember that? And what's fascinating is Acts chapter 1 through 12 is a detailed chronological account of Peter's ministry. And then Peter goes on to write 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And in all of that scripture writing, he never mentions the account again. Isn't that fascinating? I think this is yet another evidence that the gospel of Mark was really the gospel of Peter. It's really Peter's account, I believe. Anyways. All that's freebies. That's not even in your notes. Anyway, where am I? I'm, I'm bringing it. We're going to land the plane now. We're going to begin the descent. Okay. You can put your trays in their upright positions. <laughs> so why do you suppose that in verse 52, after Jesus has silenced the storm yet again, and he gets into the boat with them, And they're still trying to figure out, who is this man? Why do you suppose that John Mark writes, they did not understand the loaves? And their hearts were hardened. What a difficult text. I believe, my personal thought, I believe because Jesus back in verses 7 to 13 empowered them and they did not step into that authority they did for a moment but then their mission was over listen there's some of you you've stepped into the realm of faith but only for a little bit it may have been in your high school years it may have been in your 20s it may have been in a previous marriage it may have been in a previous job experience it may i don't know but somewhere down the line You've stopped. And somewhere down the line, you've not understood why the events of your life have happened the way they have. You've not understood why you don't follow the Lord like you used to. And you don't understand today why your heart has been hardened. Let me tell you, my friends. You need to once again begin to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to once again... Come to the foot of the cross and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. I surrender my life to you today. Do you use a streaming device at home or at work? Simply say, hey Google, play Awaken to Grace with Chad Roberts podcast and listen to our weekly podcast that is the current sermon that I preach each week at Preaching Christ Church.